Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Freedom Through Art, Alain Locke. The younger generation comes bringing its gifts. They are the first fruits of the Negro Renaissance. Youth speaks and the voice of the new Negro is heard. What stirs inarticulately in the masses is already vocal upon the lips of the talented few, and the future listens, however the present may shut its ears. So said Alain Locke in 1925, heralding the movement that has come to be called the Harlem Renaissance. The passage is found in his titular essay in The New Negro, an anthology masterminded by Locke, and containing poems, plays, artworks, and other essays by figures who are featuring in this series, like W.E.B. Du Bois, E. Franklin Frazier, and Kelly Miller. As we already know, some at the time were skeptical that Locke had really identified something new. We concluded episode 69 by quoting William Ferris, for whom talk of the new Negro minimized the achievements of the preceding decades. The same note was struck by the socialist Hubert Harrison, who said in the 1920s, If anyone in public should care to pick a decade between 1850 and 1910, I will undertake to present from the Negroes of that decade as many writers and as many lines about literary and artistic endeavor as he can show for this decade. In fact, even the phrase new Negro was not new. It had been used by Booker T. Washington, among others. There's no doubt, though, that Alain Locke himself was something new in American philosophy. He was remarkable, first of all, for his credentials. He got his undergraduate and doctoral degrees from Harvard, with a stint in between at Oxford, where he was the first ever African-American Rhodes Scholar. He went on to be a professor of philosophy at Howard University in Washington, D.C. No less noteworthy was his profile as a scholar and author. Over a career spanning several decades, Locke produced penetrating and original writing on technical questions in philosophy, alongside equally penetrating and original cultural commentary. He was an evangelist for work by African-American artists, from painting and sculpture to poetry, theatrical productions, and several genres of music. He encouraged a subtle form of race consciousness in both art and in academia, in the latter context already proposing the idea of a program for African studies at Howard. It would be devoted, he said, to understanding the race problem, not as a special problem, but as a phase of world adjustment. Locke was, furthermore, an early proponent of the thesis that race is socially constructed, and put forward distinctive accounts of aesthetic value and value theory more generally. As will be seen, all these ideas are connected, so that his extensive writings form a coherent unity, even though they were written for many different occasions. His works range from public speeches to academic articles by way of book and theater reviews. Locke achieved all this as a diminutive black gay man, not the sort of person who was typically admired in the first part of the last century. As his recent biographer Jeffrey Stewart has commented, Locke's personal narrative gave him a template for conceptualizing the psychological liberation for the Negro. He was unloved, so was the Negro. Both would remake themselves. An unabashed aesthete, Locke admitted to a certain degree of snobbish elitism. Excellence and the best, he said, can never reside in the average. Culture must develop an elite, must maintain itself upon the basis of standards that can move forward, but never backwards. 
For him, the Harlem Renaissance was genuinely unprecedented because this generation was drawing on authentic Black experience to produce truly refined and modern artworks. As he liked to put it, one could now read Negro poetry and not just Negro poets. Looking back into the literary past, he felt that authors of earlier generations had been too consumed with self-pity to produce truly transcendent art. Even after the end of slavery and social advancement for some few African Americans, artists were still too self-conscious, as if every poem, novel, or song should attempt to capture the essence of what it means to be a Negro. No longer was this the case. Formerly, the Negro poet sang about his race, now we hear race in his singing. One of the first to achieve this for Locke was the poet Paul Dunbar, who takes the crude thoughts of a Negro farm and refines and expresses them so that they may, in certain instances, take their place in English literature. As we saw last time, Locke believed the Renaissance in Negro art happened in 1920s New York because the migration of Black Americans from the South to the North helped to form large, diverse populations. This built on the existing diversity of Black Americans, who descend from many African peoples forcibly mixed in the time of slavery. So African Americans were, in his view, the true Pan-Africans. It was only fitting that the artists of the Harlem Renaissance should look back to Africa herself for inspiration, something Locke thought was inevitable, since eventually all peoples exhibit the homing instinct and turn back physically or mentally. He literally put his money where his mouth was here, building a collection of African artworks that can still be seen at Howard University to this day. Even while doing so, he acknowledged that African-American artists and art critics were to some extent preceded by European artists in recognizing the value of African art, referring to the way that Picasso and other modern artists had already taken inspiration from African masks and other artworks in the first decade of the 20th century. Similarly, Locke claimed that when it came to moving from folk traditions to being composers in the classical music sense, that the masters of Negro musical idioms so far are not Negro. Actually, Locke was not bitter about this irony. He had no objection to the appropriation of African artistic forms by white people, since for him, culture goods, once evolved, are no longer the exclusive property of the race or people that originated them. They belong to all who can use them and belong most to those who can use them best. But of course, he urged Black artists to make good use of their own past, undoing the loss of cultural memory and also technical artistic skills caused through the disruptions of the diaspora. Locke called this the most sophisticated of all race motives, the conscious and deliberate threading back of the historic sense of group tradition to the cultural backgrounds of Africa. This would not be simply a matter of imitating traditional African artworks. Like Picasso, modern Black artists are sophisticates, operating with a self-conscious, deliberately chosen aesthetic sensibility, very different from the traditional African artists who Locke assumed were forgetful of self and fully projected into the idea of their productions. Locke used a word here that we would nowadays avoid, calling such traditional art primitive. But for him, that was no insult. He exalted the authenticity and aesthetic effect of primitive or folk art. One of the many young men who Locke took under his wing said that Locke was the first person I heard who discussed seriously the blues and other folk material. Modern artists were, by definition, no longer producing this sort of art, but they could respond to it, recognizing it as in some sense their own, 
and transforming the beauty they found there into something new. This ultimately is why Locke saw the movement of his day as a renaissance as opposed to a first birth. Aesthetic forms were being reborn in a new guise as the old elemental values were augmented with modern modes of insight. Thus, writing of theater, he said that a peasant folk art pouring out from under a generation-long repression is the likeliest soil known for a dramatic renaissance. Negro drama must grow in its own soil and cultivate its own intrinsic elements. Only in this way can it become truly organic and cease being a rootless derivative. Locke called the emotional connection that Black artists find with earlier traditional art an instinctive gift of the folk spirit. This may remind us of W.E.B. Du Bois' idea of the Black gift, and rightly so. As you may have noticed, the announcement of the Negro Renaissance we quoted at the start of this episode also speaks of the gifts of the younger generation and recalls another of Du Bois's famous ideas by speaking of the talented few. But when it came to the purpose of artwork, Locke and Du Bois did not see eye to eye. We promised in our last episode to return to Criteria of Negro Art, Du Bois's speech delivered at an NAACP conference in 1926. There, Du Bois proclaimed, I do not care a damn for any art that is not used for propaganda. This may seem like a startlingly reductive view of the purpose of art, but it should be understood within the context of Du Bois's aesthetic theory. He held that the pursuit of beauty always goes hand in hand with the pursuit of truth and goodness. Indeed, truth and goodness are, he argues, tools of the artist used to provoke an aesthetic response in their audience, something we might contrast to the way that Du Bois's ideal scientist, as we saw in episode 66, aims at truth for its own sake, rather than using it as a means or instrument to achieve some political objective. For Du Bois, art by African Americans should be propagandistic, because in the very effort of pursuing beauty, it must address the truth and goodness relevant to the Black experience, so that this art will inherently and inevitably serve the cause of liberation. When framed in this way, one can imagine Locke finding agreement with Du Bois. We are, after all, talking about a man who would, in 1938, publish an article called simply Freedom Through Art. But when confronted with Du Bois's more unvarnished claim about propaganda, he took exception. He held the new generation for realizing that their best effectiveness was as artists instead of as propagandists, as experimental innovators rather than as traditionalists, as forthright group spokesmen rather than as special pleaders. Much as he faulted earlier generations for being too self-conscious and trying to represent the race, Locke wanted the artist to be motivated not by any political agenda, but by the pursuit of the aesthetic and the beautiful as such. Du Bois critiqued this stance in a 1926 review of The New Negro, noting that the book was in fact filled and bursting with propaganda, but it is propaganda for the most part beautifully and painstakingly done. The idea that art ought to be pursued for art's sake alone, Du Bois feared, would lead to a kind of decadence. We should be fair to Locke, though, just as we have tried to be with Du Bois. He certainly believed that great art was valuable in itself and argued that we can have a duty toward the beautiful and the cultural, which is a duty to no one but oneself. But he also believed that great art could do great things. It could help bridge the gap between groups and nations who would encounter one another through the medium of the aesthetic. Art drawing upon the experience and consciousness unique to the Black race 
can yield work with universal value that members of other communities could appreciate. This brings us to a central theme of Locke's thought, which already emerged in some of his earliest writing when he was still a student, the tension between universalism and the values of particular groups. While in Oxford, he encountered figures active in the Pan-Africanist movement, like Pixley Ka Isaac Eseme of South Africa, and figures on both sides of the debate over nationalism, like the Egyptian nationalist Hamid al-Alaili and Indian critic of nationalism Har Dayal. Dayal was a proponent of what he called cosmopolitanism, an effort to move past nationalist, or as he put it, tribalist group identities, so that peoples might learn from one another. The young Locke presented a paper on the topic in 1908, which presented a nuanced middle position. Cosmopolitan culture, if it is to be truly cultivating, is a sense of value contrasts. The only possible solution is an enforced respect and interest for one's own tradition and a more or less accurate appreciation of its contrast values with other traditions. It was the seed of an idea that would flower in Locke's work over the decades to come. A strong sense of group identity was valuable, but not sufficient. He would criticize artists who were inevitably and spontaneously racial, or who limit themselves to a provincial mediocrity in which their feelings about their difficulties become more important than poetry itself. Yet, as we've seen, he did believe that artists should work with a strong sense of race consciousness. The goal was, as he put it, to have the advantages of cultural differences without their obvious historical disadvantages. This explains his admiration of modernist art inspired by folk elements. It bridges the gap between the local and the cosmopolitan. Along the same lines, he argued that racial soul, or race spirit, could be the wellspring for art of universal appeal. This might be misleading insofar as it could suggest that artists should draw their inspiration from some kind of racially or nationally pure source, but Locke thought nothing of the sort. Remember, he traced the outburst of creativity that was the Harlem Renaissance to a coming together of Black people from different backgrounds. What made Harlem special was precisely a fusing of sentiment and experience. As he said in a lecture delivered as an exchange professor in Haiti in 1943, a great deal of what is best in culture derives not from pure, but from crossed and hybrid strains, which seem to be enriched by this process of cultural cross-fertilization. The benefits of such cultural contacts could be felt at the political level, as well as in aesthetics. In the same lecture, Locke described an ideal of cultural democracy that would be achieved through the transformation of those provincialisms which narrow unnecessarily our traditional conceptions of ourselves still rooted in our various cultures. In fact, Locke considered exclusionary approaches to cultural and racial identity to be not merely counterproductive, but downright incoherent. This is because of his understanding of what cultures and races are in the first place. Again, it's a topic he tackled from early on, as in his 1916 lectures on race contact. At this time, it was still widely held that there was a more or less strict biological division between the races. It goes without saying that this assumption had often been used to support racist ideology, but anti-racist authors too endorsed biological accounts of race. You may remember Martin Delaney, for instance, hypothesizing in the later 19th century that original sterling races would re-emerge after several generations of interbreeding. Locke's position on race was diametrically opposed to this. He was influenced by the anthropologist Franz Boas, 
who believed that races were unstable and that racial classifications were artificial. Indeed, Boas ultimately came to think that the very notion of race was, at best, a poetic and dangerous fiction. Locke likewise rejected the notion that races have a biological basis, and with it the idea that cultural difference is based on racial difference. To the contrary, he decided that it is race that emerges from culture. This is not to say that race is only a figment of the imagination. It is, Locke says, a fact, but in the social or ethnic sense, not in the physical or biological sense. It is more like, say, being an Arsenal supporter than like being a giraffe. As a social fact, race is subject to change over time, as are the cultural tendencies and values that loosely bind together members of a race. Some of the phenomena we've already encountered are examples of this. We mentioned how the forcible transportation of Africans to the Americas led to a loss of technical skills and cultural memory. Through the tragedy of slavery, essential features of African ethnic identities were lost. Locke goes further still, suggesting that the whole artistic sensibility of native Africans is the opposite of what we find among African Americans. The former are disciplined, sophisticated, laconic, and fatalistic, the latter sentimental and exuberant. It's a stark example of the way that historical and social developments can change the values embraced by a group. It is this concept of values that lies ultimately at the basis of everything we've discussed so far in this episode. For the most part, we've been drawing on Locke's non-academic writing, lectures aimed at a wide audience, reviews and cultural opinion pieces, and so on. But it was in his writing as a professional philosopher that Locke offered a foundation for his aesthetic theory as a whole. Beauty is only one of the things that humans value, alongside moral goodness, truth, religious feeling, and so on. So, Locke proposed a bold and systematic theory of value in general, which is well summed up in an essay called Values and Imperatives, published in a philosophical anthology that appeared in 1935. Locke's goal here is to steer between the extremes of subjectivism and objectivism, or as he elsewhere puts it, between value anarchism and value absolutism. The objectivist holds that there is just one correct set of values, which is correct because it corresponds to reality. If I think my painting of a giraffe is beautiful, and you disagree, or if you think it is acceptable to hunt giraffes, and I disagree, then one of us will be right and the other wrong. At the other extreme, the subjectivist will say that it is up to each group, or even each person, to create their own values. Though others might feel differently, there's really no sense in their disagreeing with us, because all value is just a matter of taste. Locke grounds judgments of value in the feelings we have when we experience things that may have value. Laying down my paintbrush, I look upon my just-completed giraffe painting and am overcome with wonder at what I have wrought. When I discover that a surprisingly large group of people think that the painting looks like amateurist trash, I try to persuade them that it is indeed beautiful. But this is, as Locke puts it, an evaluative judgment that merely renders explicit what was implicit in the original value sensing. In other words, I call it beautiful, just as a way of conveying how it strikes me. Still, none of us are limited to the value reactions we have as gut feelings. We can work to cultivate and change our appreciation of valuable properties. Again, the obvious examples involve aesthetics. You might need lengthy exposure, habituation, and education to enjoy classical music or a good wine, or indeed a sorely underappreciated watercolor of a giraffe. But Locke thinks it applies in other realms of value too. 
In fact, he even thinks that we can come to apply whole new value categories to a certain object, as when mathematical training allows you to admire as beautiful a proof that you could formerly appreciate only as true. Change the attitude, Locke says, and you change the value type. But doesn't this sound entirely subjectivist? If, to use another of his examples, one person finds a ritual religiously meaningful and another finds it merely aesthetically pleasing, don't they just have to agree to disagree? Or rather, agree that there is no objective basis for agreement or disagreement, only an opportunity to compare and contrast their own feelings of value? No, and for a couple of reasons. First, as we just saw, it's possible to cultivate and change one's value judgments, and we can try to help one another do that. This is what happens when races and cultures make contact with one another. Just think again of the French modern artists, whose aesthetic vocabulary and sensitivity was enriched by looking at traditional African art. Locke is remarkably optimistic on this score. Of course, he knows that groups who encounter one another can be violent, exploitative, and prejudiced. He experienced plenty of that in his own life. But he holds out the prospect that such encounters can also be mutually enriching, expanding the value sensibility of both sides. Second, even if you and I disagree about the beauty of individual paintings, we at least share a commitment to the value of beauty as such. We might find the actions or artworks of another culture hard to appreciate or even bewildering. Still, we can recognize that the members of that culture deem them good and beautiful, just as we apply these descriptions to the actions or artworks we ourselves prefer. Furthermore, there are for Locke no purely value-free judgments anyway. Even science is predicated on a search for truth, which is deemed valuable by the scientist. As he puts it, facts without value cannot be found, so an escape from subjective judgments of value to objective judgments concerning facts is not an option. Here then we have the theoretical ground of Locke's aesthetic theory. Even as we recognize that our judgments of value are the expression of our own sensibility, which will not be shared by all, we should still be loyal to those values. By speaking in terms of loyalty, Locke echoes the thought of Josiah Royce, one of his teachers at Harvard. We should, for instance, try to get others to appreciate the things we can appreciate, like by sitting someone down to watch a silent film, hoping to induce in them devotion to the cinematic art of Buster Keaton, whose greatest films were, as it happens, made right around the time of the Harlem Renaissance. But we should also be ready to evolve new loyalties. Take again Locke's approach to primitive or folk art. The modern artist needs to have a deep sense of its aesthetic power, that is to say, its value. By identifying with the culture which produced it, as when African-American artists embraced traditional African art as their own, they form a deep attachment to that power. That need not prevent them from transforming folk motifs into something new, which may in turn be more effective in crossing cultural boundaries and eliciting appreciation among other cultural groups, especially members of those groups who are open and concerned to develop a more refined aesthetic sensibility. Thus, does the national become international, the parochial cosmopolitan, the primitive sophisticated? All literature, said Locke, is a nation or race product, but no literature belongs to just one nation or race. Locke's writings on value theory belong to a kind of literature that speaks to a tribe of its own. Take a random sentence chosen from the essay we've just discussed. So, since there may be monopolistic attitudes and policies with respect to ends and ideals, just as well as monopolies of the instrumentalities of human values, 
And of this fact, the ideological dogmatism of contemporary communism is itself a sad example. It may be more effective to invoke a non-Marxian principle of maximizing values. Locke uses technical terms, fine distinctions, and subordinate clauses, makes casual references to theories the reader is assumed to know about, and writes sentences you need to read at least twice to follow what he is saying. In short, he writes like a professional philosopher. Such prose is an acquired taste, but then Locke's aesthetics tells us how important it is to acquire new tastes. And an appreciation for this sort of thing will serve us in good stead as we move forward. With Locke and Du Bois, we have begun to meet figures who were, among other things, academics. And we'll meet more in a couple of episodes, as we learn about the earliest generation of Africana thinkers who earned their living the same way that Chike and I do, by being employed at universities. First, though, we want to lock down our understanding of the pivotal figure we've just discussed. So join us for what should be a very valuable installment of the podcast, as we're joined by Leonard Harris, a biographer and leading exegete of Alain Locke's thought, here on The History of Africana Philosophy. <music>